On the prequel to the 38th episode, we're learning about voiceovers in film and previewing A Christmas Story. Welcome back to this film is lit podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. The this is the prequel to the thirty eighth episode, the prequel to our Christmas episode. First things first, before we get started, we want to mention for our first episode of twenty nineteen next year, we're going to be doing a Q and A, a question and answer. Yeah, we're gonna assuming we get questions, <laughs> see if we're popular enough. To we get may or may questions. not, <laughs> but who knows? Uh, so we're gonna. All of our social media platforms, there will be a post that you can go and reply to. You can also just send us a message or whatever you want. But we will have a post on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram that you can reply to or comment on. Uh, and we'll look there for questions. You can. Uh, there will also be a Reddit post about mm-hmm. it if you visit our subreddit at all. Like I said, you can also just send us a message on any of those platforms or t- tweet or at us or whatever. We'll find it. Or- we we'll won't ignore however. any of your questions. Yeah, we won't ignore them. We'll just, we're also <laughs> making a place so it's a little easier to find and see where to submit and that sort of thing, just to make it a little bit easier, hopefully, for everybody. But yeah, that'll be our first question or first episode of 2019, a Q&A episode. So give us your cues, and we'll give you the A's. But first, in this episode, we're going to be talking, uh, we're going to be learning what this film is lit. And the thing we're learning about this week is the use of voiceover in film. No matter what anybody tells you, Words and ideas can change the world. We're learning about voiceovers in film because, famously, A Christmas Story has a voiceover. Mm-hmm. It is narrated by the author of the book, actually, or the not book. It's a collection of. Oh stories. well, we're going to talk about. Yes, that. I know. I know what it's from. I saw that in my <laughs> research, but uh, it was organized into a book at some point of some sort. Like mm-hmm. it was organized into like memoir, whatever, whatever it was. Which again, we'll talk about later. So, what is? A voiceover. What is voiceover? Uh, I'm going to start easy with Wikipedia. It's where I always go first for sort of basic level research uh, and just to get kind of a general definition. Voiceover is production technique where a voice that is not part of the narrative, non-diegetic, a term we've discussed before, Things di- diegetic things are things that are happening within the world of the film, non-diegetic things are not. So the score, uh, the voiceover, and occasionally some sound effects are non-diegetic. Mm-hmm. And also, and the voiceover can be. In fact, we'll talk about an instance where it is later. Um, but normally, the voiceover is non-diegetic. Usually, it's just a, a narrator of some sort. In the mm-hmm. instance of A Christmas Story, it is not non-diegetic. Um, it is not happening in the world of the film as we're watching it. Right. This is the kind of controversial question. Is voiceover good or bad in film? And that's obviously a very, uh, it's a tricky question. There's mm-hmm. there's, it, there's multiple answers. Uh, before I get started there, I'd like to credit Amanda Pendolino uh, on blog.filmup.co. Uh, she has a brief and well-organized article there that I used to pull some information and thoughts from. So I wanted to credit her for writing nice. that. Nice. Citing your sources. Citing my sources. The English it's not, teacher approves. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't just pull it all from there, but I kind of got some ideas from it and expanded and changed and whatnot so the reason i put why and how is it used and is it good or bad together is because you can't really answer one without the other usually the purpose and the way it's used determines whether or not it's good or bad generally Mm -hmm. speaking in film it's not a simple cut and dry question but you do get a general rule when you're taking a screenwriting class you're generally encouraged to not use voiceover it goes back to one of the basic rules of filmmaking, show, don't tell. Film is a visual medium as well as an auditory one, but it's a visual medium first. If you're going to tell the audience something instead of showing them, they may as well read a book or listen to a radio show or a podcast. 
mm-hmm. show don't tell that's sort of a basic question or a basic uh rule of filmmaking of film writing but there's no such thing as a hard and fast rule in film or really any art form and here are some things voiceovers can do when they're used well in the film and by extension these are good quote unquote voiceovers so here's some of the things that when a voiceover is done well what it adds to the film first it can add to the tone or atmosphere of a film detective noirs are sort of famous for their hard-boiled voiceovers it's a staple of the genre and it Uh works really well because we're often watching a detective think through crimes and quip about people they interact with we get a window into the mind of often sullen quiet characters Um, also the information they share in the voiceover isn't something they usually can share freely with other characters it's suspicions about people clues they've noticed pieces they're putting together that sort of thing um, and so that's sort of informed by the genre, and it adds to sort of the tone. And, and at this point, it's become such a staple of that genre right. that it sort of feels wrong not to have a voiceover in, like, a <laughs> noir detective piece. Although we'll, we'll have an example of one later where notoriously <laughs> shouldn't have probably had a voiceover, and they added one. But, uh, but yeah, so that, that's one thing. It can add to the tone and atmosphere. Second, uh, it can... We can get the voiceover from the future. Uh, in this instance, think of Forrest Gump. This is also technically a diegetic voiceover because in the film, he is telling the story to people on a park bench. Uh. So it is technically diegetic because we see that at parts. Now, most of the time we're watching other events happen. So I guess it's kind of, it's kind of both like at times. It's, it's with a framing device. Yeah. Um, so, but anyways, so we're listening to Forrest retell the story of his life to strangers at a bus stop. We get to hear his thoughts on the things he's experienced and how they've changed his life, how they've shaped him. This tends to work particularly well when the story is driving at some sort of message. What are we supposed to learn from the film? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and a lot of times it can help because the character has learned something. Right. And so they, they talk us through the process of what they learned and kind of share that. So and we now, can kind of arrive at that same conclusion. Yes. And now that can be done clumsily or well. <laughs> It just sort of depends. Um, Forrest Gump tends to do, or is one of the ones that does pretty well. Third thing, voiceovers can add humor to what you're watching. A couple of, uh, or main example that comes to mind for me is Arrested Development. Uh, The narrator is privy to information the characters we are watching aren't. This creates dramatic irony. And in the case of Arrested Development, that means comedy. And now this isn't an exact example from the show. This is Mm -hmm. the type of line that would happen like george blue senior sitting in a jail cell talking to his son or whatever man i'm finally gonna get out of prison the narrator he was not yeah you know so it that sort of thing it's it's sort of classic in arrested development happens constantly but you get the drift uh in the film kiss kiss bang bang is another great example of using voiceover from the future and it's one that amplifies the comedy in the scene and it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but Robert Downey Jr.'s character is narrating the film from the future, and I feel like he has some sort of strange, um, as some sort of strange, omniscient version of himself, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. It's kind of meta and and, and strange, uh, but it works really well in that film, and adds a lot to the humor. Uh-huh. Um, I want to actually tack on because you're talking about this, and it made me think of an example of when mm-hmm. voiceover is used. Um, and the couple of examples that I'm thinking of, it's only used mostly at the beginning and the end of the movies, which is um, like fairy tales. Yeah. Like uh, Stardust has a narrator at the beginning and then that comes back at the end. Yeah. Um, some of the Disney fairy tales do yeah, that. Yeah, they tend to do that. Um, and I would think in that case it's related to genre. Like it yeah. creates a storybook kind of It a is feeling. a very storybook. It's somebody telling you the story, which yeah. is... It sort of feeds off the idea of being told a story as a child. Mm-hmm. You have somebody within the film telling you the story. It kind of helps. Yeah, as a genre thing. Yeah. Kind of similar. Sets the tone of the film. Yeah. Uh, when I mentioned in sort of the first 
the first point. Yes, exactly. Uh, to me, the biggest factor that decides whether or not a voiceover works well on purpose. So those handful of things I listed of reasons and ways you can use uh, voiceover are not extensive. That's not an exhaustive list. Right. But it's just a handful of ways. To me, the biggest factor that decides whether or not a voiceover will work is the purpose behind it. Which brings me to why and when voiceovers don't work and are bad. The biggest reason voiceovers often don't work is when they're used in an effort to fix a bad film. I can't count the number of terrible movies I've watched on Good, Bad, or Bad, Bad, which is a YouTube show I do about bad movies, where it was incredibly clear that the narration was added to try to cobble together a story from the complete mess that was shot. Mm -hmm. uh, generally speaking, if you're going to use a voiceover in your film, it should have been there from early on in the writing process. Last-ditch efforts to save films almost never work and are almost always very obvious. It, I mean, I have examples. There will be things that most of the people listening to this probably haven't seen. But uh, we watched a movie called The Last... No, The Mystical Adventures of Billy Owens, <laughs> which is a Harry Potter ripoff uh -huh. kind of directed DVD movie. And in that one, it was absolutely clear that the voiceover was added well after the shooting and editing. And during editing, they realized this movie makes no sense. Mm -hmm. We'll get one of the voice one of the kids to come back, and we'll write some voice lines to try to kind of piece it together, so it kind of makes sense. In that instance, it still didn't really make much sense. <laughs> Which brings me to my second point. It's similar to the first one, but they're also bad when they aren't needed. So often, you'll notice a bad voiceover is because it's not adding any new information to what you're watching. Characters might literally be describing what you're seeing on screen, and that adds nothing to the film. Mm -hmm. I can see it. I don't need some character to tell me about what's happening. Especially if we're watching a character react, and you see their face become sad, and they go, and that moment broke my heart. Or so, you know, it, it, yeah. There are times where it can work, but most of the time, it's like if you're not adding any extra information or anything extra to what we're watching, just narrating what we're seeing is extraneous. It's pointless. And on a similar note, the voiceover can also over-explain ideas and themes that would be better left to the viewer to kind of figure out and decipher and make their own, draw their own opinions about. Don't assume your audience is stupid and need everything to be explained to them. This happens a lot where, again, it's like, that made me feel sad because now I knew I could never trust that person again. We can, Generally speaking, yeah. you can kind of infer that that's what this interaction had just happened, you yeah. know. They you find you the the uh, girl comes home and finds her boyfriend cheating on her, and then we get that voiceover. It's like, well, we didn't need that voiceover. Right. I'm <laughs> that like, and I'm not an idiot. Movie. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> we don't need that. But again, it, it can walk a fine line between when it works and when it doesn't. Mm -hmm. But and finally, uh, you can just have a poorly executed voiceover. If the voiceover isn't convincing and engaging, it can completely kill a movie. It can be hard to find the right way to deliver VOs that fit perfectly within the context of every scene. It's hard enough within the moment a lot of times to act in a way that's convincing. Acting's very tough. And then to remove the person from the emotion and what they're feeling in that moment and then have them deliver lines that mm -hmm. sort of convey it, maybe even a different emotion that is, again, you're removed sort of watching the movie can be tough. So there's a lot of times where just voiceovers aren't done well, and that, that can also kill it. So bad examples of voiceover in film. My main one is going to be Blade Runner, because it's an example of nearly everything bad about voiceover. It was added late in the process, mm -hmm. basically by the studio saying, people won't understand this, or they won't get it. We'll have to, we need to add a voiceover where you kind of help move the move things along it wasn't in integral part of the, it wasn't an integral part of the story's dna like i said it was added on late it wasn't yeah. something they wanted to be there uh, i will say that it is kind of contrary to my fourth point um in that it detective noirs tend to have voiceovers 
So it kind of fits in with the tone of the film because uh-huh. it is a detective noir to some extent. But it, it wasn't something they were planning for the film. and It was an added on late in the process. It's completely unnecessary. Doesn't add any new compelling information. I'm sure that's not entirely true. I'm sure there's some things we glean from the voiceover that, you know, add to the story. But in general, it's mm-hmm. not necessary. Uh, and it over explains elements of the film that are better left ambiguous and... To top it all off, it was delivered terribly by Harrison Ford, who had no desire to do a voiceover (laughs) because he didn't want there to be a voiceover. He was happy with how it was. Yeah. So do you think then if that element of Blade Runner had been part of the story from the beginning, if If, it could have worked? I think it could have worked if they had incorporated it from the beginning, planned on it as part of the process. Because one, they would have written it in a way that worked worked into the story better than Mm -hmm. slapping it on top like a Band-Aid after. Right. Two, you probably, if it had been something that was planned from the beginning, Harrison Ford probably would have been more on board with doing it mm-hmm. instead of coming back in and haphazardly, like, it's really bad if you've ever listened to the, we watched the non, for the podcast, we watched the director's cut, which doesn't have. Yeah, I've never seen the one with the voiceover. It's a theatrical release, and there's like eight versions in the movie, but the theatrical <laughs> release originally had the voiceover. And he, it's it, you can tell he has no desire to do it, and mm-hmm. it's just lazy and and bad. And but yeah, I think if they had worked it in from the beginning and had been part of the plan all along, I think it could have been fine. Because again, I think it fits with the tone of the film. Mm-hmm. I just think because the studio basically said you have to explain this movie to dum dums, <laughs> they added it, and it just doesn't it doesn't work. So, but there are a million other bad examples of it, voiceover. Most of them are in all the terrible movies I watch from my YouTube show. Which nobody's ever seen, so I can't really say those that much. Oh, you know what's another bad one? Uh, which people may have seen. The Host. The um, Stephanie Meyer yeah. film uh, that was her series after Twilight. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was a series. It was one book, and I maybe planned on being a series, and it wasn't successful or something. No I don't idea. know. Anyway, there's a movie called The Host. Uh, starring Saoirse Ronan, who's actually a great actress, but was not particularly good in that movie. And the voiceover in that is really bad. It's delivered poorly. And we'll see that one's also weird because it is diegetic because it's like there's also the vo- it's the voiceover of the alien in her head mixed with it's very strange. <laughs> that movie was weird. But <laughs> anyways, so which brings us finally to a Christmas story, which we're going to watch it and we're going to come back and we're gonna discuss how we think the VO works with the film. And if it checks the boxes that I kind of laid out of what how VO can work in a film well. And see if it's a compelling element of a Christmas story. Uh, spoiler, from what I recall, it is. And that's kind of yeah. why we <laughs> want to talk about it, is that it is a good example of voiceover in film. Uh, but we'll talk about it in the main episode and see how it fits in to kind of, does it add to the tone or atmosphere? Is it something that kind of adds to the theme, you know, something from the future, mm-hmm. which I think in this instance it is technically too, because mm-hmm. it's about him growing up, that sort of thing. And does it add humor to the story or create dramatic irony, which again, I believe all of those check marks is... I think all of those check marks will be checked, but we'll see. All right, so come back for that. Yeah. So now let's get on to our preview of In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, which is the book that A Christmas Story yes. is In this modern age, Perfect. too many people have lost sight of the true meaning of Christmas. Mom! Hush! Shut up, Ralphie! So now, in the spirit of the original... I made you! Stop! Tradition... American Christmas. Thanks a lot! MGM presents A Christmas Story. Yeah, the title of the book is In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. 
um, which was a common saying around the time yeah. that it was published. Um, maybe not as common anymore. I it's know. more of a, yeah, it's, it was like one of those things, like, a, a, I'm sure it was a saying, but it was also like one of those signs yeah. that you would see yeah. on like, you know, on like, like a in bar, a or like at a star front, yeah. like it's like a quirky fun <laughs> yeah, like we'll give a line of credit to God, but everybody else you'd pay cash. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, but it was written by Gene Shepard, mm-hmm. a well-known American humorist. Uh, he performed on radio in the decades after World War II. He was a um, a radio personality. Um, the book was first published in October of 1966. Uh, it was a bestseller at the time of its publication, and it is considered Shepard's most important published work. Mm-hmm. Um, it also got a a bump in ratings after he died, which is always cheery. Mm-hmm. Um, the work actually inspired two films, A Christmas Story, which is well-known and beloved, and My Summer Story, which is less well-known and less beloved. I had this in my movie facts, but we'll talk about it now. I got into a fight, an an argument with, I think, Sam, about whether or not that was a real movie. He was was like, yeah, they made a sequel called My Summer Story. I goes, no, they... I was like, no, they didn't. Oh, but they did. And I was like... And he's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, it's the same thing? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, but like by this it's like written by the same per like it's it's a continuation he goes yeah yeah, yeah. and I, we got a big argument about it, and it was, <laughs> now i will say on the movie side fact we'll just drop it in here it's none of those people are in it yeah so no, it's, it's not, not the same cast it has two of the same cast it has gene shepherd as the narrator mm-hmm. and it has the lady who played his teacher miss shields yeah. are the other than that nobody else is in it. so that's probably one like, of the reasons well, i mean like can the kids were too old yeah yeah true it was yeah, yeah six years or ten years later yeah um, so beginning in 1964, um, two years before the book was published, uh, Shepard began adapting many of his radio stories for publication in a one Playboy magazine. Yep. Um, he focused primarily on the stories that depicted his childhood in the fictional town of Homan, Indiana. Um, he had been kind of reluctant to do that for a long time to write his stories down because he didn't consider himself a writer per se um and that's fair um it's a a different task to write something down to be read than it is to write something to be read out loud and performed performed, um so i i get that um but he was encouraged and helped along by his friend shell silverstein i always this it's always funny to me when they're like I guess this is just how it works, and I guess it makes sense. But like, this is run across this random like Gene Shepard. Like, I this is the only thing I think he's written that I know mm-hmm. of. Like, not like a super prolific, yeah, like writer. And it's like his friend Shel Silverstein. And it seems like a lot. Like we run into these authors who are friends with like other hugely famous and important people, mm-hmm. and it's like well, all these people just friends. Yes, it's weird. That is the answer to that. Weird. Yes. <laughs> weird um writers tend to gravitate towards other writers yeah i get yeah it makes sense um but anyway when i say that shell silverstein helped him i mean that he transcribed the radio stories and then assisted shepherd in both editing and developing them um now this is all according to hugh hefner 
So you can take it with as many grains of salt as you'd like. Um, but if it's true, man, dude probably deserves a co-author credit for this book. Yeah, from, yeah, assuming that is true. Because that is quite the undertaking. Yeah. Just the transcription alone yeah. is a task. Um, anyway, so you mentioned earlier kind of the, the genre of what this book is yeah. considered. Um, according to Shepard, it's a novel. Um, others consider it more of a collection of short stories because there's not an overriding theme or consistent characters. Yeah. Um, still others have described the book as memoir-like. I think I used almost all of those words when I was describing it earlier, and I yeah. didn't read these notes. <laughs> um, but Shepard himself has always insisted that the stories aren't true, but rather fictionalized accounts of his childhood. Right. Um, and now, personally, I wouldn't consider something a memoir if it's very fictionalized. Yeah. Um, but the novel versus collection of short stories thing kind of intrigues me. Um, so I'm excited to see if death of the author might apply here. Gotcha. If we can consider it one or the other. Okay. Well, I'll get um, you once you go through it. Well, yeah, you're not going to read the whole to, thing, I guess. But. Oh, no, I am going to oh, read, read the whole thing, thing. yeah. Okay. Um, which actually brings me to uh, the book contains 15 distinct stories that are threaded together by short intermediary chapters that feature the adult character of Ralph reminiscing with his childhood friend Flick, who is now the town bartender. Gotcha. Um, so according to the sources that I found, uh, four of those short stories were used as the basis for a Christmas story. But some elements of the other stories were also used for the film. So I guess I'm going to have to read the whole book to make sure. I was about sure. to say, and in your last yeah. fact here, I also saw. Yeah. That. Um, there is another short story that was used for the film that actually appears in Shepard's second novel. Yeah. But I'm going to pretend that I don't know <laughs> yeah. that because it's already enough of a headache getting a hold of this one. Yeah. I, I can't imagine trying to get a hold of a more obscure no. work. No, it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, I had read that too, and I thought, okay, well, hopefully she's just gonna read this one. I'm all, we'll, we'll yeah. be fine. We'll be fine. We'll we'll take everything with was that in the book with uh, like maybe it's in the other one. <laughs> but uh, all right, that's it for the in God we trust. All others pay cash. Book facts. Let's talk about a Christmas story movie fact. Fragile. It must be Italian. I think that's just fragile. Honey. Wow. wow. A Christmas Story. Come on! A Christmas Story is a 1983 film directed by Bob Clark, probably most famously known for directing Porky's about two years oh. prior to this. <laughs> yes. I didn't realize that was the same guy. Yes, he directed. But that makes sense. The teen sex romp Porky's uh, and the Porky sequel, I think, uh, and a handful of other, mm. a lot of other stuff. But um, yeah, Bob Clark. Um, uh, reportedly, Bob Clark sent scouts to 20 cities before selecting Cleveland for filming. The film was actually shot in Cleveland, Ohio, mm -hmm. even though it technically takes place in Indiana. Yeah. Um, Cleveland was chosen because of Higby's department store downtown in Cleveland. Uh, Higby's vice president, Bruce Campbell, agreed to take part in the project on the condition that he would be allowed to edit the script for cursing. They were having a hard time getting somebody from a, an apartment department mm -hmm. store to allow them to use the department store and that sort of thing. And this guy agreed to do it, but he wanted to make sure that there was not too many naughty words in the film. 
Uh, Higby's, <laughs> and I didn't realize this, became Dillard's in 1992. Huh. And then closed for good in 2002. I remember Dillard's. Yeah. I didn't realize that was what Higby's was previously. I bought my first homecoming dress at Dillard's. There you go. Rip. Yeah. Dillard's. Yeah, I didn't they... know they had closed. <laughs> oh, yeah. They, yeah. So I remember the one by us closing around, yeah, that 2002 time frame. The Red Rider BB gun was available beginning in 1938 and remains available today, but never in the exact configuration mentioned in the film. The Daisy Buck Jones model did have a compass and a sundial in the stock, but these features were not included in the Red Rider model. But after the movie's popularity, Daisy did decide to make a Red Rider like the one from the movie, and it's become their best-selling model, which obviously (laughs) makes sense. Uh, So this movie was not super critically well-received at the time it Uh came out. Hmm. It did pretty well uh, financially in terms of people going to see it. It made pretty good money. Um, in fact, it people saw it so much that it was basically out of theaters by Christmas because it sort of had everybody had seen it already. Hmm. And then, but it came back. People called for it to be come back, and it came back in certain theaters for an extended period of time through Christmas and the New Year. But uh, so one of the reviews from the New York Times by Vincent Canby, his mostly negative review, complained. That the movie's big comic pieces tend only to be exceedingly busy, though Mr. Billingsley, Mr. Gavin, Miss Dillon, and the actress who plays Ralphie's schoolteacher, Teddy Moore, are all very able. They are less funny than actors in a television situation comedy. Savage. So they're able, but they're less funny than sitcom actors, (laughs) according to that guy. Over the years, though, the film has uh, its critical reputation has grown. It's got at this point currently as of today has an 89 percent on Rotten Tomatoes Uh, in his movie guide. Leonard Maltin, one of the most famed uh, Mm -hmm. film critics, along with Ebert, who Ebert also gave it a really good review, awarded the film a rare four star rating, calling it delightful and truly funny for kids and grownups alike with wonderful period flavor. So Leonard Maltin's a fan. (laughs) In 2007, AOL ranked the film their number one Christmas movie of all time. IGN ranked the film the top holiday-themed film of all time. And in 2012, a Marist poll named the film the favorite holiday film in the U.S. So wow. it is incredibly popular these days, as obviously everybody's aware. In 1997, TN- and this is why I included this. I didn't realize that was the year. 1997 was the year TNT began airing a 24-hour marathon Dubbed 24 Hours of a Christmas Story. That's like crazy to me that that started that long ago. I know. I feel like that many people didn't even have cable then. It's, yeah, it's like. wild that it was there. <laughs> 1997. Uh, consisting of the film shown 12 consecutive times beginning at 7 or 8 p.m. on Christmas Eve and ending Christmas Day. Hmm. And, uh, 7 or 8 p.m. the next day. Uh, a sequel involving Ralphie and his family titled My Summer Story originally released as It Runs in the Family, which of course they changed that because... Yeah. Why would you release it with a weird different name that nobody understood was Yeah. It was made in nineteen ninety four with none of the main cast, like I said, other than Gene Shepard and the teacher. According to Peter Billingsley, the actor who played Ralphie, in the DVD commentary, the nonsensical ramblings that Ralphie exclaims while beating up Scott Farkas were scripted word for word. Interesting. I thought that was fascinating. <laughs> uh, on the flip side of that, I don't have it on here, but the uh, the ramblings of his dad while fighting the furnace mm-hmm. were all improvised. Hmm. And he said the the actor who played his dad said he had to it was really hard for him. And he had to only just continuously say gibberish to fight the urge to cuss because he couldn't cuss, <laughs> obviously. But he said like it was very hard for him to improvise nonsense gibberish while also not like throwing in a fuck or a shit, you know, mm-hmm. like <laughs> but he did improvise it all. This is just a random fact that I found was interesting. 
Ralphie says that he wanted a Red Ryder BB gun 28 times in the film. Hmm. Uh, apparently, and now I'm trying to double check this, and I, I couldn't find anything else other than the one entry on IMDb, but it had a lot of upvotes, so maybe it's true. <laughs> Seems reasonable that this uh, inspired the creation of the Wonder Years, which if that's the case, I can see it. It's very similar mm-hmm. type of idea with the narration and the, you know, following a kid's sort of adolescence. But that's, hmm, I don't know. I find that interesting if that's the case, because Wonder Years was one of my favorite TV shows growing up. Uh, so the major award is based on a real thing. I had no idea about this either. Yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, it's a knee-high logo. So knee-high is a fame of, or is a brand of soft was. I don't even know if it still exists. I tried to look it up, and it didn't seem like it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a brand of soft drink, and one of their logos, specifically in the Midwest, was a, like, the variation of it in the Midwest was a stockinged leg uh-huh. One stockinged leg, and yeah. part of the reason behind that was to get people to know how to pronounce knee high, yeah, because it's like a knee high stocking, <laughs> and then on top of that, sex sells. So, uh, <laughs> but that's where that came from. It was basically they he got the logo, they came up with the logo, and said, "Yeah, we're gonna make a lamp of that," mm-hmm. and it's gonna like there's never it's never explicitly mentioned in the film, but that's kind of the implication, and that it's like a version of the logo that this company gave away or something like hmm. that. So. And finally, this is fascinating. Will Wheaton auditioned for the role of Ralphie. Hmm. Well, that could have been interesting. Yeah. I He would have been okay. <laughs> as much as I enjoy Will Wheaton, I don't think he would have been better than Ralphie because Wesley Crusher is maybe one of the most annoying kids in the world. And Ralphie this, at times can be annoying, but he is not Wesley Crusher annoying. <laughs> so... <laughs> Not to say Will Wheaton couldn't have played that character differently, but I think I think that was a good call. Well, there you have it. Yes. So that was all I had for movie facts for A Christmas Story. We're going to try to get this episode out a little bit early because mm-hmm. uh, normally it would come out on Christmas. It yes. be our release schedule. I'm hoping we can get it out a little bit before that so people, if they're traveling or, you know, whatever, just in the lead up. So look for it sometime over the weekend, hopefully. Before Christmas, hopefully. We'll see. Depends on how fast Katie can read the book. Well, it's under 300 pages. (laughs) Yeah, and you're done with school for the semester, so you should be all right. But yeah, so look out for that uh, this coming weekend, A Christmas Story. And until then, uh, you can rate and review us, blah, 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 all that stuff. Follow us on all the social media. Again, reminder, we're doing a Q&A for the first episode of 2019. Go ahead and post questions. Find us, or not find us. Go to our social media give us questions and then we will answer them until next time keep reading books keep watching movies and keep being awesome